Anxiety disorders are among the most common problems we see in any clinical practice. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bodhi Dunlop, co-author of Contemporary Diagnosis and Management of Anxiety Disorders. Dr. Dunlop is the director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm happy to be here. Now, Bodhi, this is your first book. Let's talk about the process a little bit. How was it? It was good. It was eye-opening. I think the biggest challenge was trying to pare down all the information we had into usable bits for the reader. We targeted this book to primary care physicians and residents for how to treat often overlooked anxiety and anxiety disorders. But we come from a large neurobiological background, and we realized a lot of that was just not going to be helpful for the clinical purpose of the book. And so the biggest challenge I had was just what to omit, what to focus on to make it really poignant for uh, the clinical scenarios. And of course, you're probably lucky to have as a co-author Dr. Phil Ninen, who has taught many of us over the years about anxiety. Yes. I mean, I mean, that's the biggest key, I think, to writing a book is have a good co-author and <laughs> <laughs> get one. Yeah, he certainly made it a lot easier. And we were able to challenge each other because we had a good working relationship on our knowledge base and why do we believe these things. And I think that strengthened the book overall. It was a great learning experience. I mean, I think that's perhaps the best thing is when you decide to write a book, you have to feel really confident you know what you're talking about. And it really challenged me to expand my knowledge base. Now, other than finding a really nice and smart co-author, any other words of advice to people out there who might be thinking about writing a book? Well, um, I don't know if I have that much experience to suggest. I think having a very certain concise target for what you're trying to do. So we narrowed it really right down to the clinical scenarios that primary care physicians and residents face. That way you can constrain the breadth of what you're writing about. And then, you know, I had uh, people who read through what I wrote and were quite blunt about, I don't understand this. This has to be better. So having feedback like that really, I think, improves the tightness of the writing. And then even if I don't have a co-author, somehow setting up deadlines that you're accountable to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed and you just can't take it on. Right. And it could take forever. Exactly. Now, the book that you wrote is called Contemporary Diagnosis and Management of Anxiety Disorders. And to me, that implies that there may have been a recent change in how we view and manage these problems. Is that true? Well, I wanted to call it hip, but the editor said no. I had to be more professional, like contemporary. um, Yeah, so there definitely has been a change in how we think about anxiety disorders. And I think there's a few major points there. The first is the growing realization that anxiety disorders really are long-term problems for many people. The best data that's come out in the last couple of years show that many people struggle with these disorders for 12 years or more. And even when they get better, they're still likely to relapse. And so there's one aspect, it's the longitudinal course. It's now increasingly realized the uh, anxiety disorders increase suicide risk. You know, we always typically associated suicide primarily with depression or bipolar disorder, but the presence of an anxiety disorder significantly increases suicide. But then in terms of the management, I think we have a very useful model now of a top-down approach versus a bottom-up approach to treating anxiety in the sense that the limbic structures amygdala, hippocampus, really are important for generating anxiety or constraining anxiety in the brain. And that level of activation can be modulated by medication. But we can also modulate those systems through top-down control, the prefrontal cortical connections to these limbic structures that help constrain their level of activation. And that provides a framework for thinking about how to treat. Are you going to try to suppress the amygdala responding 
or reactivity through medication, or do you approach it from a top-down approach through talk therapy, or both? And I think that kind of formulation of thinking about things helps guide decisions in treatment. Maybe that's the answer to my next question, but you've been studying anxiety disorders since you began in this field. And what do you think, looking back now in your career, what's the biggest development in managing those anxiety disorders that you've seen so far? I think if you had to pick one thing, it'd have to be specific cognitive behavioral therapy modules to treat anxiety. For a long time, from the 50s on, there was a belief that anxiety stemmed from unconscious processes related to emotional conflicts growing out of the psychodynamic or Freudian model of psychology. And while there's truth to that, it's a very slow and sometimes inappropriate application of therapy. Specific cognitive behavioral techniques that directly target exposure to what the patient fears and learning extinction has really made a tremendous difference in the ability of people to truly recover uh, completely from these disorders. So I think that's the single biggest thing. Now, given that, and maybe this is just a peculiar geographical issue with Idaho, but I'm sure not seeing a whole lot of competent therapists that really understand these cognitive behavioral techniques. They seem to be kind of stuck in the old psychodynamic mode. Is that just a, a strange blip on the geographical <laughs> landscape? No, unfortunately or... not. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's nationwide. I think Atlanta here, we, we have a specific cognitive behavioral center and some good universities training. So we've got a few more in our community, but it is a chronic problem finding therapists adequately trained and experienced to administer these techniques. Because done properly, they're very effective, but that's the key. They have to be done properly. Mm -hmm. Many therapists will say they do CBT, but if you really looked at what they're doing, they're not really sticking to that which those procedures which have most been shown to be effective. So, yeah, that's a, a nationwide problem, unfortunately. So, in general, how successful are we at treating anxiety disorders? Overall, we do a pretty good job. I mean, I think a lot of people get relief from our current treatments, but not many people truly get to remission. And partly that's an effect of the medicine, and partly it's the effect of the patient's motivation. So I have this patient, and he came to me, and he was having terrible panic attacks, and he has generalized anxiety, worrying all the time. And he was taking five medications, two antidepressants, a beta blocker, sleep medicine, and uh, benzodiazepine, and he was still having panic. He was going to the ER three times a week because he kept thinking he was dying. And this is what you see. People have the panic attacks. They go to the ER. By that time, the panic attack has lifted. Maybe they got a dose of Ativan, and they start to associate, the only way I can relieve myself from this anxiety is to go to the ER. Mm. And that's what he was doing repeatedly. And so what I did was I simplified his medication regimen, but I hooked him up with one of my favorite CBT therapists in the area, and she got him to the point that he's much improved He's now able to drive, which he wasn't able to do before because he's so anxious about having a panic attack while driving. And he hasn't been to the ER for nine months or more. But he's still not completely well. He won't drive all the way to my office, which is about 30 minutes by himself. He'll drive to the grocery store. He'll, He'll drive to the gym, but he won't go a longer distance. He still has residual symptoms of anxiety that he's just less motivated to deal with. These patients with anxiety feel so much relief from the reduction from where they are to somewhat better, that that is often enough for a long time, and they're just content to just stop there, whereas, in fact, they continue to have anxiety symptoms that really could benefit with continued treatment. It's just that the motivational drive to get the treatment diminishes. So it's at that point that I think we don't do such a great job of treating anxiety. It's that last fraction that's not completely resolved. Mm. And aren't we sort of complicit in that, too, that we're so happy that the patient's better that we may not even ask if they're all the way better or not, that we're just happy that they're better? 
Well, exactly. I think that's right. We feel satisfied. We were happy. We've done our job. And the patient is not complaining. I feel so much better than I did. But I always say, but do you feel as well as you did before all this anxiety started? Do you feel as good as you ever have in your life? Because that's our goal, complete remission. Because getting to remission gives you the most protection against relapsing all the way back into anxiety badly again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's easy to buy into the patient's release. I mean, it's a real release, but you need to keep the focus on what is completely free of symptoms. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bodhi Dunlop. We are discussing the treatment of anxiety disorders. Now, Bodhi, one of the questions that I commonly get asked is about benzos. You know, there's such drama and mystery and, I think, fiction about benzos. What role do they have currently in the treatment of anxiety disorders? Well, they certainly should have a role. And I think it was definitely the case in the 70s that people were getting benzos prescribed too much, too frequently, and inappropriately. But there's now been this huge backlash like benzos are the devil medicine. And it's unfortunate because, you know, we have repeated studies now, imaging studies in panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, where we can see that the benzo receptor expression in people with these anxiety disorders is diminished. They have less inhibition going on in the brain through GABA receptors. They just don't have as many receptors or they're not as functional. In some cases, people are actually GABA deficient and benzos can have a role. The specific roles I think about for benzos are, first of all, to speed response to anxiety. We all know the SSRIs take a while to work. For anxiety disorders, SSRIs can take longer to work than they can for depression. A lot of times it takes 6 to 12 weeks to really see the benefit of an SSRI for an anxiety disorder, where typically it doesn't take that long for depression. So benzos can help tide people over until the SSRI begins to kick in. And we have controlled, blinded, placebo-controlled studies that show the benefit of having two weeks of a benzodiazepine at the beginning of an SSRI treatment. So I think uh, benzos have a role there. I think the fear of addiction with benzodiazepines is overblown. I never give them to people who've had alcohol dependence or have shown abuse of other serious drugs because clearly they can be. But the data that has been done looking at this question show that benzos are almost never the sole drug of abuse. It's in a setting of multiple drugs. And typically, most people who are prescribed a benzodiazepine in the first few months titrate up to a certain dose, and then they're stable on that dose going forward for a year or two afterwards. I think uh, that indicates that there's a stable dose that people benefit from that can be used when another monotherapy is not sufficient. And actually, my experience is with anxiety patients in particular that they underutilize their meds instead of overutilize them commonly. Well, they're anxious about getting addicted. They're anxious about the negative implications. So (laughs) the ones who perhaps need it the most are the ones most fearful of using it. Do you have any favorite benzos that you use in anxiety disorders? What we look for are drugs that have long duration of action so we don't get this on-off effect that can actually accentuate the anxiety. So I really like to use clonazepam. That is really just about the only benzo I use anymore except in certain situations. Clonazepam is nice because it has such a long half-life, but it also has a relatively slow onset So there is no rewarding experience or immediately rewarding experience of taking the clonazepam. You don't get that immediate suppression of anxiety. General Ballpark, what's the highest dose you're willing to go up to on clonazepam? Probably around 5 milligrams a day would be a maximal daily dose, but that would be rare. More typically, I'm looking at a range of 1 to 2 to 2.5 milligrams a day is sufficient. And in terms of any benzos you would avoid, it sounds like you avoid the shorter-acting ones? Yeah, so the big one that I have the most problems with is alprazolam Mm -hmm. or Xanax. It's got 
tremendous community usage, and it's really unfortunate because it's exactly what we don't want in a benzodiazepine, which in many situations, which is that it has a fast onset, so people get an immediate reward or relief from taking it, and then it has a short duration of action. And so as it's wearing off, that anxiety is building up again very quickly within the same day. So that up and down seesaw effect of worse anxiety, less anxiety, worse anxiety, less anxiety is actually detrimental, I believe, to the long-term outcome. Now, I will use Xanax occasionally in a patient who's using a PRN for a panic attack in specific situations. So if they feel like on a plane they can't fly unless they, and then they have to squash anxiety as soon as it comes on, then alprazolam can be useful as a PRN for an acute anxiety attack, as long as it's not being taken more than once a week or something like mm-hmm. that. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, my pleasure. We've been discussing his book, Contemporary Diagnosis and Management of Anxiety Disorders, with co-author Dr. Bodie Dunlop from Emory. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 